If you'd like to read with me, we'll read in Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, and we'll read through verse 11. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. There we read, If there be any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Our subject this morning is the condescension of Christ. And it is clearly set forth in this text in verses 6 through 11, particularly 6 through 8, those three verses primarily. But this is really the subject of the apostle as he begins chapter 2. He is exhorting the Philippians on the subject of condescension. And then he bases it, beginning in verse 6, upon the condescension of Christ. Let's start with definition because today when I say condescend or condescension, the usage of the word and the way it's used and the definition today in our culture and time is not the definition of the Bible nor of generations past. Uh, today the word is commonly used in a offensive manner. Someone who is condescending is an individual who is known to act with an arrogant or air of superiority over others or looks down on others as being inferior. And when we're talking about the condensation of Christ, that is not what I'm talking about at all. I have a couple of dictionaries. One of them is an 1832 version of Daniel Webster's dictionary, and it does not even have the second defin the definition, the modern one that I just gave you in it. Uh, I have a 1974 Merriam-Webster, and it has that as the secondary definition. However, that has become seemingly the primary definition in our culture today. So I don't know when that changed. I tried to look a little bit, and I won't bore you with it, but I didn't actually find anybody or anything anywhere at a pinpointed time when the, when the secondary definition became the primary definition in our culture. But 
nevertheless the primary definition and what we're talking about and the oldest definition of to condescend or condescension is to descend from a superior position or rank to an inferior one or to descend or give up privileges of superiority or dignity to do some act of inferiority. Uh, The word also carries with it, and we'll probably mention this sometime in the message, to stoop, uh, to descend, to yield or submit, or the relinquishment, I like this, the relinquishment of dignity to debasement. So, we know what it means to ascend, don't we? That's a going up motion. And condescend is against that or in opposition to that, so it means to come down the other way. Con, against or in opposition, you know, uh, condescension is it's a, a descending down in that regard. So, we're talking about Christ and His leaving his high position of dignity and superiority and becoming to a position and role of inferiority, even that of a servant or slave, as the Scripture says. So that is our subject. And again, a little confusing today when you say that word because of the way it's used in our culture. So the Philippians are exhorted to be and have a condescending nature and attitude as can be seen in the first four verses. Let me quickly point those out. He's speaking there, of course, in a very loving manner as he continues chapter 2 from from chapter 1 in verse 1 about comfort, fellowship, love, bowels, mercy, and things. And then he states his desire in verse 2, it is my joy through or in love for you that you be like-minded. Well, if we're like-minded, we're all on the same level, aren't we? Okay? There is no superiority. There is no inferiority in like-mindedness, isn't it? Now, the natural thing for everybody to do is to, th- to think more of ourselves than we ought to think. That's natural for sinners. So Paul's exhortation is be like-minded. In other words, if you're on a high horse or you're heady and high-minded, arrogant or full of pride, get off of it and get down. Get down here and be like-minded, having the same love, one accord, one mind. A person who is haughty or arrogant or feels himself superior, it's not going to do that. So this is an exhortation that if this is a problem, or if this is what you are or who you are, condescend and get down there so everybody's on the same ground by, in, and through the grace of God. He pursues this, verse 3, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. Why are things done through strife or vainglory? Pride and an unwillingness to condescend. I am superior. I know more. I give more money. I have more. Therefore, it ought to be done this way. Strife, vainglory. I'm not budging. You know, strife, pride, vainglory. But opposite in lowliness of mind. 
Okay? Lowliness, coming down again, a descending, condescending, and esteeming others better than themselves. You see, this is all about an exhortation to condescension. Finally, verse 4, if you're still not getting it, then, you know, hear this. Look not every man on your own things, but look every man also on the things of others. Okay? Condescending. Finally, saying, Lent, or some say, having the this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And his was a humble, lowly, condescending disposition. All right? So the condescension of Christ based, uh, or the exhortation to, of the apostle here to the Philippians, based on Christ's condensation, con condensation, it's not condensation, condescension got that crossways once this morning in my mind so we were going to look at the condescension of christ and what we want to look at is to define it as we've kind of done already but to describe what we mean by it as it applies to christ and then how it was actually uh, achieved or how it occurred the means and then ultimately why condescension, I'm sorry, and finally the effect of it. And some of those points won't take very long once we establish the first. The condescension of Christ. We have the Son of God, the eternal only begotten Son of God, who was one with the Father and creator of all things, giving all of that up to become one of the creatures. The creator becoming a creature, yet not in the creative sense, but in the form of. This is another one of those things that as I speak about it today, I hope will cause you to be more assured in your mind of the truth of God and His Word today because the condescension of Christ is something no human being would ever come up with. It is divine in its very source. That God would do this. That there is a God who would condescend and take upon Him a man's body, become one of us, Emmanuel, God with us, that's foreign to the human mind. The human mind is all about ascending ourselves, not of God descending in grace for us. And if you think about that a little bit, I think you will be assured that nobody, no man would come up with such a thing. But literally get this, the condescension of Christ is Christ leaving his position, his dignity, his majesty, his glory that he shared with the Father and literally becoming or taking the form of a slave, that type of servant. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about his condescension. Now, several things in verses 6 through 8 Show us this. And I want you to just notice these quickly, and then we'll give a brief exposition of them. First of all, in verse 6, it says that Christ is or was being in the form of God. 
Okay, just kind of isolate that phrase, form of God. And then we have the phrase, thought it not robbery, to be equal with God. And then in verse 7, he made himself of no reputation. And then the phrase, he took upon himself the form of a servant. And then the phrase, he was made in the likeness of men. Verse 8, he being found in fashion as a man. And then he humbled himself and then he became obedient. Now all of those phrases, and many of them will overlap when you're talking about form, fashion, likeness, etc. All of those are different words, but they're conveying this same idea of condescension, okay? And it shows us that he came literally from one extreme of glory to the lowest extreme of humanity, a servant, a minister, or a slave. That is the condescension of Christ, and I will say it is beyond our comprehension. The more you look at it and embrace what is said here, the more you find yourself at a loss to comprehend that God would do such a thing, being under no obligation whatsoever. All right, let's consider these things quickly, shall we? Uh, he, first of all, it says there, being in the form of God. Well, again, God doesn't need to have any form to be God, right? I mean, if you didn't have a body, you wouldn't be you here as far as us looking at you. Yet we know that there is a you inside of that body, don't we? I mean, because when we die, the body is only the tabernacle of the person and the soul lives on, doesn't it, in that regard. So try to get that in your mind that God, again, the Bible says God is a spirit, right? So everything we know of that's living needs to have some tabernacle or body or house, something housing it to contain that life. God doesn't. So God is outside, again, of our finite understanding of what life is or what a being is. God is a spirit. So what form was Christ in before he came a man? Well, again, you don't have to think about, well, he had a different body than the one he... No, no. God doesn't need a body. God doesn't have to have a body to be God. We know very little about the essence or being of God as far as trying to see something, to know that God is here. And this is the argument of the infidel and the atheist. Well, show me God and I'll believe in God. They wouldn't believe in God if you saw God because they saw Jesus Christ who was a manifestation of God and still didn't believe in God. So that, that argument won't fly. But when we think of God, we do see certain things in Scripture that even though you may not see God, God is surrounded with glory and majesty and a brightness that is peculiar to his very existence. Now again, you got to chew on what I'm saying pretty hard. I mean, just because he's God, those things are there. That doesn't surround us. There's not a majesty with us. There's not bright lights or a halo following us around. Because we're not God. But God is. Let me give you a scripture from the Old Testament and then one from the New Testament just to exhibit this and we'll press on rather quickly. 
In Deuteronomy, the fifth chapter, and verse 24, Moses reminds the children of Israel, And ye said, Behold, the Lord our God has showed us His glory and His greatness, and we have heard His voice out of the midst of the fire. We have seen this day that God doth talk with man, and He liveth. God exhibited things at Sinai, and yet no man saw God. Remember the lightning, the thunder, the ground quaking, the voice of God, and all of those things. When you look in Revelation chapter 4, what John saw was God on his throne, the sea of glass, the rainbow behind, and all of those things that surround the majesty of God. So it's like, you know, an atomic bomb going off. You don't actually see the bomb. You just see what the bomb does or radiates out. And this is expressed, I think, most greatly in the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 16 mentions about Christ being a king of kings, Lord of lords, verse 15 and so forth. In verse 16 says, Who only hath immortality, and here is the form of God, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man has seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. So when it talks about being in the form of God, again, we're not talking about a corporal body. We're just talking about the being, dignity, majesty, light, and everything that surrounds God because He is God. Now it says in the second part there that thought it not robbery to be equal with God. And it's not. There is no robbery in the Godhead. Christ does not compete with the Father nor the Holy Spirit. They are three in one. And Jesus said in John chapter 10 and verse 30, I and my Father are one. Two things there quickly to notice. That is the equality and also the deity. If Christ was in the form of God and equal with God and did not try to, literally robbery is what? To seize by force. Well, that's what Satan tried to do. Satan wanted to be God by overthrowing God and to seize that position by force. And of course, he didn't have the power to do it. But in contrast here, saying Christ didn't try to do that. He was already God, equal with God, he and the Father were one, three in one, God the Father, God the Spirit, Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And there's no competition within the Godhead. There is perfect divine harmony. So, this is who Christ was. All right? This is what Christ gave up. This is what Christ left. And how did he do that? Well, verse 7, he made himself of no reputation. Now, you know what a reputation is. And the bottom line is, the very definition of that word, nobody has the reputation the God of the Bible does. He has the reputation that supersedes all reputations because He's God. He's Creator. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. Nobody has that type of reputation. He is truth. He is light. He is holiness and so many other things, right? So Christ took him, made himself of no reputation. He had as God the ultimate reputation. 
And no reputation literally to us would be a nobody. If you have no reputation, we're not talking about a reputation that you may lost through sin or immorality or things like that. We're talking about not even taking notice of. A human being that nobody knows, nobody cares, nobody nothing, and that in Paul's day would have been the equivalent of a slave. You may have had a name, you may have had a number, but you had a master and you amounted to nothing. You could be alive one minute and killed off the next and replaced. Christ made himself. This means willingly. You know, most slaves are made by somebody else, aren't they? Christ voluntarily left what we read of in verse 6 and became the lowest of men down here. And again, we can say servant, we can say minister, but the bottom line is when we talk about servant here, the word is doulos, and it literally means slave. The King James translates it many times in other places, a bond slave, meaning that you're bound in that regard by duty or obligation or ownership. But the word is used 127 times, and it means slave in the New Testament. So think about that. Literally, from the highest to the lowest. Christ didn't come down here and become an average man. He became a lower than average man. He was born in poverty. He lived in poverty. He was a king of kings and lord of lords and is today and one day will rule as such. But nobody would have recognized him as a king in his human origin and nature and lifestyle, etc. Remember, he said, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has not a place to lay his head. Doesn't sound like somebody of much eminence, does it? But he made himself. And literally the word here on that, and let me give this to you, when it says made of no reputation, is to be emptied. To be emptied. Emptied of pride, emptied of dignity, empty of popularity, empty of position. So again, the Bible in Isaiah 53, there is nothing about him that would attract anybody. He was meek and lowly, and nothing to look at or, or anything in that regard that would draw human attention. Amazing. From the greatest to the lowest. The description goes on and says there, He took upon, well we covered that, made himself no reputation, took upon himself the form of a servant, made in the likeness of men. That's very important. Again, Hebrews speaks to the fact that God gave him a body. Okay? And he did. He indeed did that very thing. God in human flesh. In fact, uh, Timothy again, I think it's chapter 3 and verse 16. Let's look at that and see here. First uh, Timothy chapter 3 verse 16. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on the world, and received up into glory. And when we talk about this, we're talking about literally the means by which he condescended. How did he do that? Well, he took, as it says here, being found in fashion as a man. He took a body. This, of course, was not 
did not happen by the normal human physiological process of a man and a woman, but he was conceived in the womb of a virgin by the Holy Spirit. So no earthly father, but literally the incarnation, God becoming man, Christ taking a body, Christ being born just like you were born and I were born, except without a human father in the womb of a virgin, a woman who no man had ever known. Christ's birth was uniquely different, but that's how he condescended, was by the virgin birth, and as the scripture says, being found in fashion as a man. Mary didn't give birth to an angelic being. She gave birth to a normal human child, except it was not by normal human conception, and it was not normal in the sense that it was God and yet in human flesh. But everything human about him was normal humanity. All right, except what I've just, just mentioned there. So he was found in fashion as a man. Uh, again, the Bible says in the book of Hebrews chapter 2, he didn't take on the nature of angels. He took on our nature and became one of us. Because he came very simply to redeem human beings, not angels in that regard. So he was found in fashion as a man. He humbled himself and he became obedient. Those things are very important also because there is no condescension of any kind in the true definition without humility. And humility automatically implies that there is a condescension from a feeling or state of superiority to one of inferiority, which Paul is exhorting the Philippians to obey and to do. And his obedience was, was not just obedient while he was alive, but his obedience was to an appointed sacrifice, which was death. And then that death was not a normal death, but a very cruel and violent, the worst of its kind in that day, the death of the cross. So that is the condescension of Christ, and he did this willingly. You know, again, notice the things that said he made himself, he took upon him, and I put himself, the form. This is the willingness, this is the submission, you know, of what he desired to do, was willing to do. He had a purpose in mind for doing this, a couple of which we want to mention here. The con in the condescension of Christ, well, let's go back to the slave idea because it's kind of foreign to us what it really means since none of us have really been slaves. If you're employed, you are a servant to your employer, but that's very different to a slave. If you were uh, employed by somebody who never wanted to hear your opinion, that would be slave-like. But you can probably inject your opinion sometime and at your place of employment, or you may be asked or think. So there are privileges with our employment that does not come with being a slave. Literally, a slave in the fullest sense of the word of doulos is one who gives himself up to another's will, totally and completely. You don't get asked nothing. You don't get to inject nothing. You just get to doing part of what somebody else tells you to do. It's a real low state of inferiority. There's no freedom. There's no exercise of any freedom. There is only the 
doing what the other's will is. So giving up all of that literally reduced to a position of taking orders and performing what you're told. So you give up your own interest, you divest your own interest totally to the interest of another. Well, that's exactly what Jesus did when he came to this earth. He came to this earth in numerous scriptures in the New Testament. Jesus over and over said this. He did not come to do his own will, but the will of the Father which was in heaven. There was not one selfish anything in the condescended Christ. The fact that he came was according to the will of the Father. It was the will of the Father that he come that he agreed to that he would take a body and that that body would die for the sacrifice of his people. But always the Father's will. So that's the way he was a servant or a slave in that great way. One of the greatest, in fact, I believe the greatest manifestation in picture form of the condescension of Christ here on the earth of what we're talking about, really uh, a moment in his life and an act that he committed in his life shows the condescension. And that's when at the Last Supper, when he instituted the Lord's Supper, the night that he was betrayed, arrested, and then crucified the next day, he did an act in John 13 that only John records. And that is after supper, he got up and took a towel and some water in a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. Now, picture that. I said it was a picture. Indeed it is. Because here was not just a man. Here was the Son of God. I mean, He was man, and yet He was God. If it were not for Him, they wouldn't even be there. Nothing would be Hebrews 1 tells us that all things were created by Him, of Him, through Him, to Him, and all. And yet, and you know, everybody went barefooted in those days, or wore sandals. And they didn't have paved roads. We know how that goes over. We've all went barefooted, right? And He, the Master, stooped. Again, that was our definition. One of them was it. Stooped down. He didn't have them climb up in a high place. He stooped down where their feet was and washed the disciples' feet. recorded in John 13. Remember that? And when he got done, even after Peter's protest and misunderstanding and everything, he then told them, basically, you do to others what I've done to you. Exactly what Paul is exhorting here. As Christ willingly and humiliatingly became inferior, so do likewise. Don't think you're too good not to wash somebody else's feet. And the, and the foot washing is not something that we need to repeat. I don't believe in foot washing in the church or outside the church or whatever. It was a show. It was something he could do that would understand and convey the point of ministering to somebody else 
in the lowest way possible, if needed, if necessary, and if required. Him washing dirty feet in those days, in those conditions. And he said, the Son of Man didn't come to be ministered unto, but to minister. And he said, you guys do likewise. So that that act there is the, the act, uh, the ultimate act, I believe, in the life of Christ that captures what we're talking about of stooping down to do something that you did not have to do, but you were willing to do to illustrate and make the point that others should do the same thing. Exactly what Paul is doing right here to the Philippians. Now, let's deal with the last two points quickly. Why the condescension? Well, thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. In order for sinners, the creatures who had fallen into sin and were dead in sin and under the curse of the law and the penalty of sin to be redeemed, the plan of redemption required blood sacrifice, remission of sins only by blood, and it had to be by perfect sacrifice, and therefore eliminated everybody and everything, angels included, except incarnate Son of God. It was not a random act. It was with purpose that the only begotten Son of God would condescend to become one of us, that He might die as one of us for our very redemption. That's it. That's the whole purpose. That's why He condescended. And of course, it's not refuting the fact that it was out of his great love. Love was the motivation that he would make himself of no reputation, take upon him the form of a servant, humble himself and become obedient not only to God but to the contract in the covenant of grace that by his sacrifice many sons would be brought into glory. And that's exactly what he did. He gave his life a ransom. And in order to do that, it required his condescension. What is the effect of the condescension? All those for whom he gave his life will be saved. Not one will be left out. All that the Father giveth to me will come unto me. We are the beneficiaries of the sacrifice of Christ's condescension. We are saved because if Christ had not done what he did, what we're talking about here today, we could not and would not be saved. Divine justice would still be imperative for every one of us. We would all still be guilty awaiting the execution of our sentence as guilty. But because Christ condescended, and accomplish that sacrifice by which we're saved, we can go free. That's the bottom line. That is the effect, and we rejoice in that. Let's close with this thought. What is the effect also for Christ in accomplishing this? We're the beneficiaries, but what about Him? All these things we covered in verses 6 through 8 that deal with His condescension. Finally, being that he humbled himself, becoming obedient even unto death, the death of the cross, the worst death you could die. A, a nobody 
Imagine in that day, and slaves were put to death all the time. They could be knocked in the head, they could be speared, they could be crucified, they could be whatever, and nobody would blink an eye at it. Nobody knew who they were, and nobody would remember them after they did. Christ reduced himself practically to that in the eyes of men. But being obedient unto God and accomplishing eternal redemption for us, get this, verse 9 and 10. God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. Now think of this. This this is almost practically full circle if you would have it. Think about where he started out as the eternal only begotten Son of God and what he left when he left heaven, when he left his Father, when he left the angels, when he left glory. And where he went to as low as low could be in this world. And yet because of that act of condescension and the accomplishment of our redemption, now he goes back to a place of exaltation where he was, but if you would have it, a greater place. Because he has done something and accomplished something through his condescension in that sacrifice, that gives him a place higher than where he was before, if that makes sense to you. Highly, he was exalted before. Let's use the adjective or the adverb, highly exalted now because of what he did. And giving him a name above every name. That's, that's again, superior to angels. And the ultimate effect of this is, of the condescension and his accomplishment of the atonement, that at the name of Jesus, one day, every knee shall bow. Heaven, earth, below the earth. That's divine beings, angels, those that are in heaven, People that will be upon the earth when Christ rules and reigns on the earth and those that will be brought out of the earth who will be judged and be dead. Everybody. Everybody alive then. Everybody who lived before. Anybody that will live after. Whatever. All of them. Everybody. Angelic or human. It will be absolutely universal. Heaven will. Hell will. The name of Jesus Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess him as to who he is and what he has done and the truth of his condescension. Absolutely amazing in that respect. Absolutely amazing. Highly exalted him. He deserves that place because no one has ever done what he did or could do what he did. Let me close. I hope this makes sense to you. Can you imagine? Let's go to a military example. Can you imagine the highest general in the United States military today? Well, that's a chief of staff or whoever it is. Answers only to the president, commander-in-chief. Can you imagine that in a battle or what have you that that general would pull off every medal, every rank every star, take off his general's uniform and put on a private's uniform? 
and go shoulder to shoulder with privates in battle, men who are new recruits that don't have nothing but a name and a serial number and are nobody, the lowest rank, that's exactly what Jesus did. He left the highest, went to the lowest, did what no person could ever do, and because of that, has now been exalted to a position I would say, again, I don't believe it's contrary to the Bible to say to a position higher than he was before. Not that he was lacking anything, but his accomplishment of redemption just deserves more exaltation than before he did it as it does after he done it. That's our Lord. This is the condescension of Christ. Aren't we thankful for it? Where would we be without it? And none of us can imagine what it took to do this. Contemplate this. If you're a child of God, value it. Because it gives us insight into just what kind of Savior we have and what kind of sacrifice He was willing to make. There's not a human being alive that would be willing to willingly be humiliated to the condescended place that Christ went. And yet the Son of God did it for sinners such as ourselves. If you're lost today, you're hearing me or you're seeing me on this video or audio, recognize what Christ did for sinners. And if you know you're a sinner and lost and without Christ, repent and believe upon Christ. And then we which believe in Him will one day be exalted with Him. But if you've never been humbled... By a conviction of sin, you'll never be exalted with Christ. But as surely as you repent of those sins and trust in Christ, His promise is you will be exalted with Him. May God give you the grace to do so today if you have that need.